Psalm 119. So this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Pardon me, I'm going to take out my phone so I can make sure I don't go into tomorrow or anything. Sometimes we preaching folk tend to carry on. Psalm 119, 1 through 8. God is an amazing God. God is awesome in His ways. And here's something interesting about God, and something that we might not really think of, but it's true, and that's God is both incomprehensible, yet knowable. God's incomprehensible, yet knowable. So God is incomprehensible. And when we look around and we see the Eastern religions around us and and the influence of the Eastern religions, the mysticism, things like that, they would agree God's incomprehensible in the respect that their idea of God is a very vague idea. Almost like God is an intangible force. You can't really, well, can we call God a he or she or an it or a they or an us? They don't really define God. And to, to know God, well, that might look like this or it might look like that. God's incomprehensible, but Christianity and the Word of God defines God very differently and that God is incomprehensible not because God is a force or because God is vague or because God doesn't know who He is or that He's different to you than He is to me. No, He is is who He is, but He's incomprehensible because we're humans and we have limited brains. So he's incomprehensible to us. You might be familiar with the scripture from Isaiah that says, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways. So, and without using the word incomprehensible, that's a statement about God's incomprehensibility. That is to say, he's, our, our brains, some, somewhere, the smartest person, whoever that is, their brain somewhere like kind of plateaus, like, here, and God's somewhere, and God, somewhere way out there, and, and God is incomprehensible in that just as an ant or a chipmunk cannot totally understand the ways of a human, I mean, they probably don't know why we go to work. They probably don't know that we're going to work. Quite frankly, I hope they don't know that we're going to work. And don't cry and just as, just as our ways are incomprehensible, think of how much more 
how much greater God is than us than we are to ants and chipmunks. God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. And this is where we differ from the Eastern religion ideas that God is, well, God's kind of out there. God's a force. You're kind of one with God. You're kind of not. It's okay if you're not, but maybe you should be. And, and, and this is this vague, uh, difficult to understand because it doesn't really make sense, but it's kind of not supposed to make sense. God has revealed himself to us. That is the difference. That is the difference. God is incomprehensible. That is, none of us, if God had not revealed himself to us, none of us would know what we know about God just by our own wisdom. We wouldn't, no human being can just, on our own, if God had, if God was not intimate and he didn't want to intimately reveal himself to us, none of us would have just on our own with a God that just created the world and stepped back and did nothing with it and didn't reach out to us, none of us would have just come to the conclusion of who God is and his attributes. None of us. God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. And God has revealed himself to us. And we're going to focus on one of the specific ways that he did. First, God revealed himself to us through what we call general revelation. And this is the revelation that he's given every, every human being. Every human being, whether, you're, whether the person's a Christian or an atheist or anything in between, every human being can experience general revelation. And while that's not a word that, you, a, a term we find in the Bible, it's a term that we coin certain things that we see in the Bible, such as in the early chapters of Romans, Paul writes that no human being is without an excuse because creation, in not so many words, declares the glory of God. You look around at creation. That's a, that's a way of God's general revelation. You look around at creation and you only can come to one of two conclusions. Either a creator made it or it somehow happened and it ended up looking like this by itself. And logic points to a creator. General revelation. There's also the general revelation of our, of our conscience. Not all human beings have the Holy Spirit. Only those who are born again have the Holy Spirit. But every human being has a conscience. Now people can stray very far and through a series of terrible choices sever their consciences. But every human being has a conscience, a God-given conscience that gives them a sense of right and wrong. Some people are more sensitive to their conscience than others. Some people grew up in better environments than others. But every human being has a conscience. That's a, that's a point of general revelation. So with just that, every human being can tell that there is something out there beyond us and that there is right and wrong. There is a creator and there's a sense of responsibility. And one might even go so far as to say that there is a sense of responsibility that we're not keeping up with very well. And maybe that's why in so many religions, no matter what the religion is, 
they have some kind of way of making up for something. Well, it might be you have to outweigh your goods with your bads. Did I say that the wrong way? I don't think there's a religion like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe something really evil, but well, I guess you could say they're all evil. Anyway, anyway, rabbit trail. The, you have to weigh, outweigh your bads with your goods. <laughs> that probably wouldn't sell too quickly. You have to outweigh, or maybe it would. You have to outweigh your bads with your goods. You have to do certain religious activities. Uh, and then we have ideas um, like reincarnation and things like that. But that's about as far as you get. God had to specifically reveal himself to us. And this is how he did it. He specifically revealed himself. He did some, some of that specific revelation or special revelation through miracles. And he did it through his word. And he did it most specifically and definitively through his son, Jesus Christ, by, by coming to us in the human flesh and getting right on our level. That's where he most specifically revealed himself to us, is in Christ. And this morning, we're going to consider how he's revealed himself to us in his word. Psalm 119, a devotional on God's word. This is a very unique psalm. It's the longest psalm, has 22 stanzas. And while many psalms appear that they are created specifically to be sung, this one could be sung or could be read. The longest psalm, and it's an, it takes the form of an acrostic poem. You might think of an acrostic poem like a word and and one of the letters of the word, whether it's the first, last, or middle, is the start of another word, and, and words are made out of the word. And I'm not going to try to break that down in the Hebrew, A, because I have not studied Hebrew, and B, because you have not studied Hebrew. But this is in the Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem using the Hebrew alphabet. And that's another interesting thing about it as an interesting structure. We don't exactly know the author of this psalm, but take heart, Jesus quoted psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. We don't exactly know the date of this psalm. Some people believe it was during the, uh, a little bit after the exile time of Babylon when they went back to Jerusalem, but we don't know that for sure. It's a devotional on God's Word, a unique psalm. And what a, what a great psalm this is to read, maybe before you read the Bible. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. This is in the Bible. Before you read other books in the Bible, you could, this is broken up into these 22 stanzas, each with eight verses that corresponds with a, with a Hebrew alphabetic letter. And this, this makes for a great devotional. Perhaps if you're going to, if you have a Bible reading plan or if you have a, a certain passage of scripture you're going to read, you could read one of these uh, stanzas and have your mind renewed about the importance and the value and the, and the wonder of God's word. And you can, and you can look at what this, how did the psalmist approach the word of God? We might look at that more specifically next week. So let's take a look at this 
glorious psalm. Psalm 119. What were some of your first impressions of the Bible? Do you remember that? Before, before you were following Christ, how did you interact with the Bible? How did you approach the Bible? That might be a very early memory for some people, but I can, I can remember it in a general sense. This is what it was like for me. There was a Bible in our house. I didn't much touch it. We went to church and we read the Bible and it's, it's good. I didn't really understand it. Uh, and I had this Bible called the Picture Bible. And that's exactly what it sounds like when I was a lad. And every now and then, I would open up to a random spot. I would read something. And I would feel good about myself because I read it. Which is better than not reading it, right? <laughs> Maybe. I wouldn't actually do what it said. I would just read it and think that somehow that made me good in some supernatural way. Osmosis. Yes, exactly. And I remember one time when I was a teenager, in my, in my younger years of being a teenager, I, out of <coughs> obligation, guilt, or something else, opened up the Bible. And I think I might have even intentionally turned to the book of Matthew because I knew there are at least four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalms. And I opened up the book of Matthew. I knew that it said something about Jesus, so that kind of made sense. And, I mean, I went to church, but I didn't really touch the Bible other than going to church. And, and I remember going to, I must have gone to Matthew chapter 5, and reading, If the left eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Huh. Well, this confirms my thesis. The Bible is an old book. It's confusing, and you certainly can't take it literally. I closed it and went back to my normal life. <laughs> this verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who is blameless? Who is blameless? This, this, the Word of God brings us to the point where we realize on our own accord we're not blameless. In Galatians 3, 23-25, Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So Paul is saying here that the law, that is the Old Testament commands, and, and so, sometimes when Scripture talks about the law, sometimes it speaks specifically of the Torah, sometimes it's specifically speaking of, of the law of Moses that we read, like the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's broadened from that, and then sometimes it's kind of the idea of the whole Old Testament, and sometimes we might, we might uh, in a general sense, think of it as Scripture, but it's that Old Testament, a law of Moses kind of idea. The law functioned as a schoolmaster. And, it, and it, it's, it's kind of like a mirror that you look in and you see your own imperfections. 
when we look in Scripture and we see God's standards, and if we approach it with any sense of honesty, we see that how much we don't measure up. And that's why the Lord gave the law, is so that people would see how much they don't measure up. And it was also to have a relationship with Him, also to walk closely with Him, but in that, to realize on our own, we can't. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. And in the Old Testament, that took the place of looking forward to a Savior. And there was the foreshadowing, and there, was, there were the temporary sacrifices that they did. But they had to do the sacrifices over and over again because the ultimate sacrifice had not come yet. Now we live in this blessed time where we look back to Jesus' sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our redemption. So the law, the, the, when one starts to look at Scripture or hear the truths of Scripture and comes into this friction of who they are and that who I am in and of myself, I'm not that impressive to God. My ways are not His ways. The one starts to look and, and looks at, look at the law and see their own imperfections and they see that they get this feeling of guilt. And if that's carried to the cross, carries them to the cross, then that guilt is a very good thing. One looks into the law, says, I can't live up to that standard. Exactly. And the person goes to the cross. The law, it drives people to the, need to, the to the need for a Savior. And the law in all of Scripture takes on a new light when we know God. Once we know God, can you identify with this? At first, Scripture seems burdensome. When, when, when you actually first understood, I'm not making it. This is not something that I, I can't really keep all this. What about those things that I don't do? What about those things I fail at? Brings you to the point of a Savior. And once we know the Savior, growing in Christ through the Word. But here's the transition. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, says, King James Version, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And how are we renewing our minds? How are we proving what's acceptable, the will of God, by staying in the Word and walking with the Lord. So the law goes from this thing that convicts us. Scripture goes, and I could say all of Scripture goes from this thing that convicts us. That was a close one. Convicts us, points us to our need for a Savior, brings us to the point of guilt, brings us to the cross, and then turning to Christ, confessing that He's Lord, believing that God raises from, from the dead and turning to Him for the forgiveness of sins, brings us, God brings us new life in Him. And then Scripture takes on a whole new perspective. And then it's something that's life-giving. 
It's the law brings death, but the Spirit brings life. The law convicted us and condemned us in our sin, but brought us to the point of new life in Christ. And now, when we, in Christ, when we look at Scripture, it's this wonderful thing. It's this, all this wonderful truth that renews our minds and gives us energy and life, and we commune with God through it. Once we understand grace, we know we don't need to read the Bible to gain God's acceptance. But the Holy Spirit gives us the desire to read the Bible because we're accepted by God. As Romans, uh, Scripture in Romans 12 said, and in light of God's, all, all God's mercy, and all, in light of all that He's done for us, it's our, it's our normal, acceptable thing to do, to live as a sacrifice for Him to be a living sacrifice. That's, that should be our natural response, to want to live for God because of uh, His great grace in giving us His Son. And we want to renew our minds with the Word. And, and living for God means communing with Him, communicating with Him, getting to know Him better. And that's what we can do because He has indeed revealed Himself to us through His Word. Unlike the Eastern religions that, that have God as this 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 intangible force, God is indeed very personal. And He's revealed His heart to us in His Word. He's given us so much that we can know Him better with. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Now, our ways are not blameless, but Jesus' ways are blameless. And His righteousness is placed on us. And, and He enables us, although we are not perfect and we're still not without sin, He enables us to live out what He's revealed to us. And we are blessed when we walk in a, in a holy way. We are blessed when we walk in the ways of the Lord. So what's that mean, blessed? Psalm 1 is a good one to follow up on and meditate on. But we won't go there today for the sake of time. Maybe you will this afternoon. Maybe I will this afternoon. We hear the word blessed uh, kind of a lot in Christianese, right? That's a, that's a Christianese term. That's a Christian word. Sometimes we hear about it outside. I have a relative who says things like, I'm so blessed. I don't think she knows the Lord. I'm not sure what she means by that. I don't know what she means by that. The other night, two nights ago, I saw someone in a mall that, in the mall with a t-shirt on that said, hashtag blessed. What does that mean? I typed it into the internet. It seemed to have something to do with football. <laughs> I don't know. I, I left the website more confused than I was when I went on to. And I knew that would happen too, but I wanted to do that just so I could say this to you with authority. <laughs> Blessed is the happy condition of those who revere God and do His will. That's, I, got that, I got that wording from the NIV Study Bible. Blessed is the happy condition of those who revere God, who have a proper, a proper fear, a proper respect and reverence for God, and do His will. We, we see the word blessed again a lot in, in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. 
And we see it a lot in the book of Psalms. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And when we walk in the law of the Lord, though, though we know Christ has absorbed sin, though we know we, that Jesus has absorbed our sin on the cross, isn't it still wonderful to have a sense of, I have to, I have to word this the right way, because we have, as I just mentioned, Jesus' righteousness placed on us if we know him. Yet at the same time, isn't it a wonderful feeling when you know you've done the right thing? according to, to the Word of God. As people have said before, there's nothing more miserable than knowing the Lord and purposely living outside His will. There's nothing more miserable than knowing the Lord and purposely living a sinful life. It's, it's got to be miserable. It's more fun in the sin for someone just to not know the Lord. But to really know, as Scripture says, to taste and see that the Lord is good and to experience the, the, the wonderful ways of God, it's miserable to live outside His will in intentional sin. Yet, the flip side is also true. How, how wonderful it is when you know the Lord to walk closely with Him. To walk to, to maintain that intimacy in your relationship with God through a close walk with Him. And this is not to say that we are earning God's favor because Jesus paid the sacrifice in full. But it is to say that a life of intentional sin versus a, a life of intentionally walking close to God, closely with God, one's blessed and the other's not. One, they're hugely different. They're, they're on different spectrums of, of life experience. Blessed is he whose way is blameless. And how do we keep our way blameless? By walking closely with the Lord and by staying in the Word and, and looking at what, what does it mean to live a blameless life? What does it mean to live a holy life? God's revealed that to us. And there's so much religious teaching out there where it's so vague that, oh, well, spirituality to you might be one thing. Spirituality to me might be, in, be another. Someone who I knew just the other day, a couple days ago, we were saying, like, oh, how'd your day go? How'd your day go? And, and he knows I'm a Christian. And he was saying, oh, spiritually, pretty good. Got a good feeling going on today. And, and that's, that's really how people, a lot of people evaluate spiritual life is kind of like good vibes. But thankfully, we're not left to guess like that. God's revealed himself to us in his word. And he's revealed himself to us, what it means to live a righteous life. What it means to, to walk blamelessly before him. Following God's command, commandments is the path to joy it's the path to happiness and expressing love toward God. In John 15, verses 10 to 11, Jesus said, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, or remain in Jesus' love, be at home in Jesus' love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. 
Jesus didn't say, I'm going to smooth out your life and make nothing bad happen in it. Trials come. Some of us experience them in very real, physical ways. This week, trials come. The, the, the road is bumpy. The sea is choppy. The Lord doesn't smooth out life for us, although sometimes He, sometimes he does for seasons of life. But none of us have that guarantee. But we do have this guarantee. Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, that my, my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. We can live a, a joy-filled life with the joy of Jesus in us by abiding in the love of God. And we abide in the love of God by walking closely with Jesus. And we walk closely with Him and we show our love to Him by keeping His commandments. Our obedience to God is an expression of our love to Him. That's a way we express our love to Him. And we do that in response to His great love to us, which He showed us first when He died for us while we were yet sinners. Finally, growing in Christ through the Word. Growing in Christ through the Word. So in daily life, what does this look like? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Take a look at verse 6. It's coming. I lost it for a second. Verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. My eyes fixed on your commandments. What does that mean to have our eyes fixed on the Lord's commandments? We read in other places in Scripture the idea of meditating on Scripture, letting it soak in, have, having, having God's Word in us so we go about our day. We live in a culture that does not value rest or stillness or really having a focused mind. We live in a very busy culture, uh, a fast-paced world, and it's interesting because have you noticed that everything's becoming more convenient, but it's not necessarily becoming easier in, in some ways. Everything can be faster, but nobody's any less busy. Everything's done, I mean, I mean you don't even have to go through the drive-up anymore in the normal fashion. You, have, you can have an app to make the drive-up at McDonald's be faster than the app, than the driver. See, I can't even, it's, it's exceeded my brain. I can't even say it. <laughs> but, and I'm not condemning drive-through apps. You can have the drive-through app if you want. That doesn't make you a pagan. But <laughs> the fact is, that's, that's life, right? That's, that's the high-tech world we live in. It's getting more and more high-tech. It's getting more and more high-tech. Everything's very fast. And you, you, everything's the push of a button. And in some ways, that's, that's very good. But the reality is, you would think, you think back to the days of old, when everybody had to wash their clothes by hand, and all the meals had, were, were meals that had, the animal had to be killed. And the, I mean, <laughs> usually you still eat it when it's dead. But you know what I mean. It wasn't, it's just like pick it up at the supermarket and it's all wrapped up for you and, and, and pre-cooked and everything. All the, yet, did they have much less spare time than us? Probably not. They might have had more spare time than us. We somehow remain busy. And how does this 
affect keeping our eyes fixed on the law of God. And when I, when I, by the way, when I say the law of God, this, while the psalmist who wrote this was probably most specifically referring to the Old Covenant, which, although it served as a schoolmaster to point to one's need for grace, it also served as a way to walk intimately with God. This, I think this is an application that probably for the Christian goes to all of Scripture. Goes to all of Scripture. Although specifically here it's meaning the Torah or, or the law of Moses probably. This is, this, we can apply this to all of Scripture, the New Covenant as well. In a busy life, what are we to do? You know, there are so many opportunities to learn the Word of God. There are so many, there are, there are well-known seminaries, some of the, some very excellent seminaries that you can just go onto iTunes on and, and get their lectures for free. I mean, we've never in history have we lived at such a time when the Word of God is so available to us. But I hear many people say that we never in history have stooped, at least like in our country's history anyway, has stooped to such a shallow level of biblical illiteracy. Isn't that an interesting paradox? It's there more than ever, yet we know it less than ever. So who is that on? That's on us. We need to take responsibility to fix our eyes on the law of God, fix our eyes on the Word of God, fix our eyes on His commandments. We know, how to be, we, we know how to fill up every second, but how are we filling it up? That's the question. You know, I, when I make my rounds at the mall, when I'm doing mall security, I was, I've noticed when I walk by Buffalo Wild Wings, they have the bar there, and I, I have never really much been one to frequent the bar anyway, but I'm safe to assume that the idea of bringing electronic devices to the bar is a new thing. I don't think 20 years ago people brought electronic devices. Like, what would have they brought? Alarm clocks? <laughs> I, like, what? Personal computers? <laughs> they had laptops 20 years ago, I know. But laptops? But when I walk by Buffalo Wild Wings, I took a glance at the bar, and every time I do, I see people sitting at the bar with their cell phones out. That's kind of strange, isn't it? It's kind of strange, especially because there are big screen TVs right in front of them. I guess they prefer the small screen to the big screen. Are they watching the same thing on the small screen? I hope not. That's, that's stupid. That's just stupid. That's pagan. Or maybe not. Okay. That, no, it's not pagan. It's just stupid. Which is not as bad as pagan. But the... We know how to fill up. Have you been to a waiting room lately where there are more than like three or four people? Have you ever seen somebody just sitting there? If you do, you should be scared. They're probably about to do something crazy. They're a dangerous person. No, I'm just kidding. They're not. But, but normally, whether, whether they're elderly or whether they're five, they probably have a cell phone out, right? A bad thing? Not necessarily. But the point, the point is, we know how to have something with us to occupy our minds at every waking second. There's no such thing as buffer zone anymore. There's no such thing as buffer zone. I mean, I see people, they can't even walk across the crosswalk without being on the cell phone. That could result in death. Mm-hmm. 
Every second is occupied. And if we can do it with news feeds, email, surfing the web, whatever it is, watching a video, here's the challenge. Could, could we also do it with scripture? Could we also do it with the Word of God? Many of us, myself included, don't have time to read the Bible. I do, don't worry. Don't worry. I do. But there are many times when I don't as much as I should. How much should you? That's between you and the Lord. But I know I don't as much as I should. There are times when we let things get in our ways. Every one of us has 24 hours in a day. And probably none of us really have time to read the Bible. We probably don't have time. What, what should we do? Make time. Make time. We do for other things, right? We do for other things. There, there are, many of us don't have time to do what we do. But there are some things we choose to do. And you can be creative. You can, it's, it's worth it to take a little bit of time and get into the Word. This is what somebody, when I was in college, I thought, how can I possibly really have a devotional life with the Lord? How can I possibly be spending time in the Word and time with the Lord? I have all these studies. I have all this reading to do. It takes me forever. I'm a slow reader. I'm up late every night. I'm up early every morning. I, I'm exhausted. I just don't have time for this. How, how can I? I, I, think, I feel like I just have to wait till I graduate or at least till summer. And somebody who uh, was kind of serving as a, somewhat of a spiritual mentor to me said, well, what if you took 10 minutes? Because everybody either has or can make 10 minutes, right? What if you took 10 minutes and you read the Bible for seven minutes and prayed for two? Is that a lot of time? No. Is that better than nothing? Absolutely. You could read a psalm. You could read virtually any chapter of the Bible in seven minutes and pray for... That, that's, that's hugely beyond nothing. And then, of course, hey, can make more time. That's all the better. But that's just to show sometimes, sometimes I think we get so busy that, and we expect the idea of, oh, if I had this time, then I could spend it fixing my eyes on the law, fixing my eyes on Scripture. But the reality is we can take what we have and we can use it very well and we can, we can create opportunities, perhaps more than we do. Consider now the psalmist's heart. Do we make time for the Word? And as we make time for the Word, Consider, let, let us be compelled to get into the Word. Let us be compelled to, to take time to fellowship with God through the Word by considering the psalmist's heart and letting it spur us on. Verse 5 says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do you hear the psalmist's emotion there? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. It sounds desperate, doesn't it? I think that's the idea. I think he wants that to be contagious to us. And that we read this and say, oh, this guy, I can identify with that. I can, I can identify with the temptations of sin around me and, and, how, and knowing how good God is and how wonderful his, his, the scripture is that he's revealed and how much I want to live it. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. A desire, a plea to be obedient to the Lord. And he helps us with that. He will, he'll, he'll work through us by His Spirit. 
and he wants us to be in the word. So we're renewing our minds and taking this in and being fed, being charged up in the word. Consider the psalmist heart. And now finally, as a body of Christ, let us continue in the word. We, as, as, as our title, Higher Ground, a remnant church, we call ourselves a remnant church because we want to carry on what we see in the book of Acts. We want to say, not to try to duplicate it artificially, but to say, if God does not change, and he wants to work through his apostles and his, and his early church in such a way, let's not water it down. Let's keep it that way. And how do we do that? How do we identify that? How do we stay up? We stay in the word. Individually, as believers in our own time, and together corporately, we stay in the word. We go back to the word. We evaluate what happens with the word. Uh, if something out of the normal happens, is it scriptural? If it is, praise God. If it's not, we throw it out. Whatever that looks like. We might not throw someone out the door just because. Or we, maybe we, we well, that, that's a message for another day. <laughs> Remaining the word gives us balance. Some people, some people try to, some churches try to really have an emphasis on teaching the word of God, which is good, which is good. But they do it at the fault of being kind of afraid of the Holy Spirit. And, and they do it at the fault of saying, we're going to emphasize the word almost, almost as to say, you've perhaps heard this before, some, some churches kind of take an approach of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That's not how it should be. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who works in perfect harmony with the Bible. Perfect harmony with the Bible. Remaining in the Word allows us. And, and when we're steady in the Word, when we remain in the Word, when we, when we don't um, take truth from other places, maybe use it as a supplement to the Word, but never to replace the Word. When we stay in the Word and keep on going back to that, that's what gives us the right, proper, safe balance. As, we, as the song we sang this morning, Wander where our... Uh-oh. Uh-oh, the lyrics are leaving my mind. Go out upon the water. I'm going to leave it at that. That wasn't planned. <laughs> Go out upon the water. <laughs> if that doesn't make sense, just understand, we need to be in the Word. <laughs> Psalm 119. We're going to look at this some more next week. A different stanza. We're not going to, I don't think, go through the whole thing. We'll skip around to some different stanzas. But here's the challenge for this week. Where are you in relation to the Word of God? You know, the Bible never says anything about how many minutes. Sometimes we want something like that. Sometimes we want something like that. But uh, wherever you are, take some time to search your heart before the Lord. Are you, are you in the Word? Are you regularly taking time to be in the Word? And are you taking time to let it soak in? I confess that's what I need to work on more. I'm in the Word. Sometimes I need to let it soak in more. I go running off to do a thousand things sometimes, and I don't take time to let it soak in. 
By the end of the day, sometimes I, don't, I scarcely even remember what I read. We could each improve, probably. Not to gain God's approval, because His Son did that on the cross, but out of, out of being compelled by the love of Christ into a deeper relationship with God. It's a, reasonable, it's a reasonable lifestyle to want to live as a living sacrifice out of His great love for us. And we do that by reading, as some say, the love letter that He's given us as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. Let's join together in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for the truth in it. We thank you that though you gave it over a series, thousands of years and, and thousands of years ago, it still is just as true, just as applicable today as it was back then. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that you, want, you, you created us to be in relationship with you and that you revealed yourself to us in such a way that we could know you personally and that you, you paved the way by going to the cross. Thank you, Lord, for that. And now, um, if anybody with eyes closed, uh, if anybody wants to just lift up your hand, if you would like prayer to, um, for a, a personal rededication of your time in the Word, uh, starting today, starting this week, just raise your hand. Lord, we lift up these to you. It's a busy life we have. It's a busy life we have. Lord, help us to make a, a rededication, starting today, with time in your Word. And if any of us slip off the, the boat, so to speak, if any of us have an off day, let, let the enemy not convince us that this means, oh, you're never going to be focused on me, and you're never going to be in the Word. Let, let us just get back on, get back into the race. We ask, Lord, that you help them find a right, a good time to spend in the Word, and that you draw them to you through that. We thank you for this. We ask you bless our time of fellowship. In the holy name of Christ, and we commend our, our tithes and offerings to you, that they would please you. And we thank you for a time of song, prayer, and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.